We're going to have a little audience participation here. Uh, see how, how well you all have been paying attention. How goes the world? Ah, very good. But the kingdom comes. King Jesus is returning. How can we be sure? Well, two weeks from today is the day in the church calendar when we celebrate God beginning to reclaim the nations. Pentecost Sunday in Acts 2. I'm sorry, Pentecost Sunday. In Acts 2, we read of the Holy Spirit coming on the disciples. And they're preaching in the different languages of those gathered in Jerusalem. But there is more to that story. Now, say right off the top, um, somebody once said that they had no original thoughts. Well, that's me as well. So a great deal of what I drew from this sermon came from a Bible scholar named Michael Heiser, who some of you know, some of you have read some of his things. Uh, he just recently passed away. <clears throat> he had done a lot of research into what he called the unseen realm, where the spirits, other supernatural creatures dwell, and the divine counsel. He also wrote some other commentaries which has, have informed some of the ways in which I see scripture and how it plays out in our lives. And if you want to take a deep dive into his things and some of those things, I would recommend his work. <coughs> Excuse me. To get a better picture of what was happening on that Jewish feast day, we have to go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God, the self-existent one, the I am. Sometimes we forget that before God created what we know as the universe, he created beings to work with him in administering that universe. Some have called these the divine counsel. In Psalm 82, the psalmist writes, God has taken his place in the divine counsel. In the midst of the gods, small g, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth. For you shall inherit all the nations. In Psalm 82, the psalmist Asaph writes of God taking his place in the divine council and judging the other gods, small g, for failing to administer justice to the nations. In the apocryphal book of Enoch, which many in Second Temple Judaism uh, that era just before and around the time of Christ we're familiar with. These beings gathered together on Mount Hermon and decided to corrupt the humans that God created. More on Mount Hermon later. So what does that have to do with Pentecost? Well, I'm glad you asked. In Genesis 11, we have the account of the people coming together 
in desiring to build a great tower or a ziggurat to reach up to the heavens. After the flood, God had given the command to multiply and to fill the earth, the same command that he had given Adam and Eve. Instead, the people decided they were going to stay put and build this massive structure. They thought that doing so would give them a great name and would bring them to the place of the gods. This is known as the Tower of Babel, or more correctly, the Ziggurat of Babylon. It's kind of interesting that we see Babylon here as a place that sought to follow the lesser gods of this world in the first book of Scripture. And in our study of the last book of Scripture, Revelation, we are seeing Babylon again as seeking to follow those same lesser gods and fighting the true God. Kind of a bookend, as it were. So what is God's response? He confuses the language of the people so that they cannot understand each other. I've heard all kinds of speakers talk about how the things that could happen when someone says, give me those bricks or whatever, and they can't understand and the fighting that would ensue. So because of this, their language is being confused. They scatter all over the earth. They end up doing what God told them to do. End of the story, right? Wrong. Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 9, explains more completely what happened. Scripture reads, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. Some translations have this according to the number of the sons of Israel. But when the nations were scattered, Israel didn't exist. And the Greek Septuagint, which most scholars, I think, believe is closer than some of the other texts that are used, uh, that translation of the Old Testament says the number of the sons of God. It's talking about the divine counsel, these spirit beings. So these verses describe how God, when he scattered the nations, disinherited them. He no longer said, I will be your God. He turned them over to the sons of God, the lesser gods with a small g, such as the one we see in various passages in the Old Testament, Baal, Ashtaroth, Marduk, others like that. However, God did not leave the human race entirely on its own. He reached down into Mesopotamia, where the rebellion had happened in the first place, and brought out Abraham and set him apart for his own. Through Abraham came God's allotted heritage, as it states in Deuteronomy 32.9. Excuse me. In Genesis 12, God tells Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. The nation of Israel was to be a light to the other nations, showing them who the one true God was. 
so that they too would turn to him and reject the false gods. Well, instead of influencing the other nations for good, Israel adopted the worship of the false lesser gods. And because of this, Israel was removed from their land and scattered among the nations. You might be starting to get a little bit of an idea of of how this is going. God, however, had not abandoned the original plan. In Luke 3, Jesus is presented at the temple. And an old man named Simeon comes up and says, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Zechariah prophesied for John that he would be the forerunner of the one to give light to the Gentiles. In Matthew 16, Jesus and the disciples come to Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asks the disciples who they say he is. And we have a couple of our member, uh, Stephen and David, who have been there. And you can ask them uh, what they thought of the place. Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus then says that upon that rock, that confession, he would build his church and the gates of Hades will not be able to withstand it. And we always have a picture of these gates of hell and sometimes people think it's the gates of hell coming against the church. No, it's not. It's the church attacking the gates of hell. But anyway, what are the gates of hell or Hades? Well, the place where they were standing was known as the cave of Pan. Pan was a Greco-Roman god who I don't remember if he required human sacrifices. I don't think so, but he did require sacrifices. And they would do those here at this cave. In the cave was the gate of Hades. Next chapter, Matthew 17. Jesus is transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John. They hear God say that this is his beloved son and that they were to listen to him. I believe that Jesus was, in a sense, throwing down the gauntlet. He's saying to all of the demonic powers, the lesser guys, okay, I'm here now. I'm ready. Let's get this done. He has gone to the gate of Hades and told the gods of this world that he has come to take back what originally belonged to God, but had been disinherited. He's then gone up onto Mount Hermon where the spiritual beings had gathered and decided to rebel against God. And on that mountain, God the Father declared him to be the one who was promised. It was now time for the blessing promised to Abraham to begin to come true. 
In Acts 2, we see that blessing beginning to come true. Now, there are a number of significant things happening in these verses. In verses 1 through 3, the disciples are gathered together, and suddenly a sound like a mighty wind comes from heaven and fills the place. Divided tongues of fire appear to rest on the heads of each of them. It's interesting that the Greek word for divided here in this in Acts 2 is the same word in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, of Deuteronomy 32, where God divided the nations. And the fire appeared to rest on the disciples. When the Israelites were at Mount Sinai, a mighty wind was blowing and fire rested on the mountain, signifying the presence of God. The fire of God also rested over the tabernacle in the wilderness and in the promised land, (coughs) signifying God's presence with his people. Where the fire was, God made his dwelling. At Pentecost, the fire of God came to rest on each one of the disciples. Now they were his dwelling. They were now the dwelling place of the creator of the universe. The followers of Jesus the Messiah were now the temple of God. 2 Corinthians 6.16, Paul asks, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In verse 6, the Jews hearing the disciples are said to have been bewildered. The Greek word there means confused. And it's the same word used in the Septuagint for what God had done to the languages of the people. So they were confused back then. Now the people are confused here because they're hearing the word in their own language. 3,000 Jews turned to the Messiah. Jews that had come from all over the Roman Empire. Which, as far as they knew, was the entire world, pretty much. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asa, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. The Jews that had been scattered throughout the nations came back to Jerusalem, where they heard the good news of the fulfillment of everything their people had longed for in the Messiah, Jesus. And these new converts went back to their homes and began to tell others about Jesus. Things are starting to turn. That disinheriting of the nations is starting to be reversed. Now, Paul believed that his mission was part of God's plan to reverse Babel and bring the nations back to himself. 
In Acts 17, Paul says, And he, God, made from one man every nation of humanity to live on all the face of the earth, determining their fixed times and the fixed boundaries of their habitation, to search for God, if perhaps indeed they might feel around for him and find him. And indeed, he is not far away from each one of us. A little longer for the voice to hold out, let's see. As Paul traveled through the Roman Empire preaching the gospel, his goal was to take the message as far west as Spain, Tarsus. Now, Tarshish is not included in the list of nations in Acts 2. There wasn't anybody there from that area. But it is included in Scripture, in Isaiah 66. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Paul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javon, to the coastlands far away that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord." I wonder if Isaiah had in mind uh, the Western uh, continents. As I guess at some point it did get here. <laughs> when you look at the list in Acts 2, you see that Rome was the farthest area to the west on that list. But there are some Bible scholars who believe that Paul did make it to Spain. Clement of Rome, who was one of the early church leaders, who knew Paul, who knew Peter. He wrote in AD 95 that after Paul had preached in the east and in the west, he won the genuine glory for his faith, having taught righteousness to the whole world and having reached the farthest limits of the west. Now, we know the Roman Empire went as far west as the British Isles. But at that time, the farthest limits of the west was considered, guess what? Spain, Tarsus. So according to Clement, he made it to Spain. Possible. It's possible that Paul had been released from house arrest in Rome. Remember when he first went to Rome, he had his own house. People could come and go and and visit him and so on. It's possible that he was released and went on some more journeys. There's a source I read that actually listed the different places that he went. And then later was arrested again because he ended up in that uh, maritime prison where it was cold. Remember he said, bring tell so-and-so to bring the cloak because he was in a cold, dank prison. And then he was executed. In Revelation 7, we read of a multitude that no one could number, 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages worshiping God. The good news of King Jesus continues to spread throughout the nations and in multitudes of languages. Battle is being reversed. Now, 2,000 years or so later, God is continuing to redeem and to re-inherit the nations. While we here in the West are pretty comfortable in our brand of Christianity, the Holy Spirit is shaking things up in places such as the Middle East, Africa, and China. He's even working in places in the West, although they don't get the attention. We who follow King Jesus are part of God's work to re-inherit the nations. We are part of a family that transcends race, nationality, or culture. And we must always remember that our identity as children in the family of God is far more important than any other identity. We are members of the family of God and citizens of his kingdom. And that supersedes any race, ethnicity, nationality, or creed. We are part of that innumerable multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language who will worship the one who reversed the fall, redeemed us, and brought new creation. We have been given the privilege and the responsibility of telling others that Jesus is the true king and that he calls them to follow him, becoming part of the inheritance of God. May God help us to live as those who have that unshakable inheritance.